Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 128 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Tony Rose Deanna and she, they pronouns, a community engagement manager here at MCP. And I am joined today by an anti-bias and anti-racist nationally recognized educator and author who also happens to be a really close friend of mine, Liz Kleinrock. Welcome, Liz. Hey, Tony Rose. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Oh, I miss you. I miss you so much. And it's so exciting to be in this space and any space, actually, physically, virtually with you. And so thank you. Thank you so much for saying yes to the podcast. And so before we get started, what's bringing you joy lately? Oh, God. Okay. So we, my my partner and I kind of semi-adopted an alley cat <laughs> um, that we had just been like informally feeding for the past couple of months when we saw him and then it got really really cold here back in December like dropped down to single digits and we're like oh I'll just take him in for one night he'll sleep in the basement and now like he has a collar and I just spent a silly amount of money on him at the vet getting him all vaccinated and stuff so we kind of have a cat <laughs> You know, I've actually really enjoyed this journey for you on your social media. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you have a cat. How are your rabbits, your bunnies? Like, uh, how are they adjusting? They're just like, you know, they just range from like mildly salty to like extremely salty throughout any random day. So it's really no change for them. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. What is your alley cat's name? Uh, Bruce. His name is Bruce. Oh, I like that. That's actually really cute. I love it when animals have human names. (laughs) (laughs) I was not thinking about it really when I named him because I was just giving the alley cat and passing a name. But now I'm like, I should have maybe been more intentional. But I like Bruce. It suits him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, Okay. Well, Liz, tell us more about who you are and how you started your ABAR education journey. All right. So my name is Liz. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I joke that when I introduce myself, there's like a a mouthful of identifiers. So I am a transracial adoptee. Um, If you're not familiar with the term transracial, it means that I am of one race. I was adopted into a family of another race. I was born in Korea. So I am Korean, Korean American. Um, My family is Jewish. Um, I identify as queer. So many things. Um, and how I got started on this journey, definitely, I don't know, by accident. It's been a lot of very serendipitous events. Um, and I have an enormous amount of gratitude to folks in my community, my mentors, friends, and colleagues for folks who have really supported me and pushed me on this in, in this direction. Um, but anti-bias and anti-racism or ABAR was really not something that I had ever heard of growing up. It's not something I think many of us were ever exposed to. Um, I actually began in education really focusing on social emotional learning. Um, and from there, recognized that there was so much cultural bias wrapped up in what we talk about when it comes to SEL, um, the types of expectations we have on our students, especially when we have kids from different countries, different cultural backgrounds coming together under this very white dominant educational system. 
Um, and from there, really expanded a lot of this work to look at different types of biases, to examine inequality, um, different forms of systemic oppression and racism in our society. So it's really just grown from there. And at this point, I've now taught kindergarten through sixth grades. I have been a librarian. I've been in different schools, offices of equity inclusion. Um, and now I write and I consult and facilitate about this. So Unfortunately, I don't think I have like an elevator pitch for what I do. Um, I have my hands in a lot of different things. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing about you too, Liz. I know that you taught me definitely the word transracial. Um, and because I was like, I just was never aware. And so I, I just love all of your stories. And I'm just so glad that you are in my circle. And just learning from you has been so impactful in my own journey. And so I, I'm really excited for our, our listeners to just kind of get a glimpse of who you are and what you do. And, and I know that they're going to have some great takeaways from you as well. And so, you know, this month's theme in our modern classrooms community is supporting all learners. And I immediately, of course, thought of having you as a guest. Um, and so typically when we say all learners, right, when we say supporting all learners, we typically think about labels that our learners have like IPs, 504s, English learners, and never really thought about their identities, right? Never really about their cultural identities. And so today's topic specifically is culturally responsive teaching. And so first of all, what is your definition of culturally responsive and sustaining teaching? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what that means and a lot of fear that goes along with it as well. That is so incredibly true. Um, I was actually doing a presentation for a, a very large international company recently, and their topic that they wanted was cultural sensitivity. And so first we had to really dive in to unpack what are the differences between all of these terms. So talking about cultural sensitivity, which is really just, as it sounds in the name, being sensitive to different cultures, thinking about just what do I know about people of different backgrounds and identities and from there, trying to move that needle a little bit towards cultural competence, thinking more about like, how do I actually act? How do I show up? From there, jumping to cultural responsiveness, thinking about how are we actually leveraging strengths and assets of individuals due to their cultures and identities. And from there, moving the needle even further towards culturally sustaining practices, thinking about how companies, schools all over have these initiatives about, you know, we need to re like recruit and hire more folks of color, like people of different cultural backgrounds, but there's nothing about actually supporting people so that they, they thrive. What are we going to do to actually nourish folks across culture in our communities? And from there, just really trying to develop critical consciousness as much as possible. Um, so also just wanting to note that many of these terms that I just said are used interchangeably and synonymously, but they mean really different things. Did I answer your question? I feel like I just went on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was actually, that was really great because I was just writing notes down because cultural sensitivity, that is something that I have not come across. And so I really like this ladder that you've created, right? Like, hey, becoming sensitive to the different cultural differences here. And then we do our, you know, the cultural responsiveness and then this, the sustaining part, right? Something that I know, like I used to work at an independent school, something that we talk about at that independent school is like, yes, we want to hire and recruit educators of color but we cannot retain them. So how can we retain educators of color? And so I think I really like this, this conversation that you brought up too, of just like, okay, these are all great stuff, but then really ultimately we need to keep it moving forward as far as like supporting and retaining our communities of color, wherever that may be, right? Students, teachers, adults, whatever. And so, whew, that was great. Thanks, Liz. <laughs> oh, can I note one more thing also? Yeah. That I think like 
the the piece around like being responsive to your community. I think in education, we struggle a lot with this because there are so many pieces of education that are standardized, even, you know, from standardized testing down to, well, I'm just going to reuse this exact worksheet or lesson plan that I created last year and the year before. I don't want, and I get that like as someone who's been in education for 13 years, it's exhausting to have to recreate from scratch like every single year. And we also have to remember that the moment we begin to standardize what we do, we are no longer being responsive to the people in front of us. So how do we also like hold space for that, that nuance, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good thought. Um, and then something that came up for me um, with the responsiveness is also that white savior complex, Ooh, yes. right? Of like, oh, I'm going to respond because I think I know what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and like coming up with all of these like misconceptions or rather just playing by assumptions and stereotypes. And so I think we really also need to be careful with that. And it's not just like white folks who have this white superior complex or white um, savior complex, but it's also, it could be people of color who also think the same way. So I think just, again, recognizing that like when we think about responsiveness, really elevating the communities and what they need and not what we think they need. Absolutely. And like as a person of color, I've definitely been guilty about that and have had to check myself. Not only like when I started teaching primarily in, you know, black and brown communities, serving black and brown kids, thinking about, you know, what actually drives me to work with this particular community and like what do I really need to unpack here before I start, you know, running my mouth about, you know, like so many teachers, I'm here to like save kids. I, you know, I want to help kids. Um but so often we make these really biased assumptions about what we think kids need, especially based on their you know, gender identity, their racial identity, things like that. Um, so it comes up in so many ways, including, you know, I, I made a post recently was talking to some teachers about um, the pride that a lot of teachers, I think, feel across all identities about being able to claim, well, I'm the only person in my school who cares about anti-racism work. And that like, makes us feel like, oh, I can give myself like a pat on the back. And it also gives us kind of a superiority complex that I'm better than everybody else. But the thing is, like, if you truly are the only person in your school community doing this type of work or teaching with this lens, and then you leave your school, and then it all falls apart, you've made very little impact. Like, what is actually the legacy going to be of your work? How are you going to then build capacity to really shift culture? So even if, you know, you have like a director of DEI and that person gets replaced or they leave, that everything isn't going to fall apart too. Mm. Yeah, I I definitely resonate with that whole pride piece, right? Um, And even in this journey, I mean, like you've known me now since like 2018, 19, one of those, Liz. And I think like I'm learning so much and I, I still mess up. And it's you it's, all the time. Yeah, it's 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 part of the process, right? Like, and it was really uncomfortable for me to face like all the mistakes that I've made in the past, um, and even the mistakes that I continue to do because I just don't know any better. Um, but I think I've just gotten so much better at sitting with that discomfort of like, oh, girl, you messed up. <laughs> How you gonna fix this? <laughs> I know, dude. I had a mistake actually. <laughs> I'm getting off topic. I made like a bias mistake last week, Um, was at a spin class. Um, This guy who works at the studio, super, super nice, like really, really friendly. I asked him how he was doing, like how his year has been going so far. Told me like he recently graduated from college, like he was really excited about this. And I recommended a book to him about, um, 
you know, just like navigating once you get out of school and you're in your twenties. And he was like, Oh, actually like, I'm like, that's funny. You think I look younger. A lot of people do. I'm actually 30. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, like, Hey, yes. Like this dude did look really, really young, but I'm like, crap. Like this was also like a fairly ageist assumption too. Mm-hmm. And so like, I took like 10 steps and then ran back and was like, that was kind of ageist. I'm really, really sorry. I didn't like, you know, obviously my intention was not to say X, Y, or Z. If it, imp- if I impacted you in this way, like, I'm really sorry. Um, I think he was a little taken aback. He was like, no, I thought it was kind of funny. It's all good. But to me, like that was an awareness gap um, that I needed to check myself in. And I knew also if I didn't apologize and own up to it, then it would probably haunt me for like the days to come. But yeah, we're all on this journey of learning and unlearning. And I think for folks who are, you know, averse to mistake making, as many of us are, you know, that's just going to be a natural part of this and it's going to happen. And the sooner you accept that and hopefully you'll be able to turn them into teachable moments and be able to learn something out of it. I think that's the most important part. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if it's like, oh my gosh, a day later or something like, especially if it's a friend or someone that you've had contact with and you realize that there was something that could have been taken the wrong way. Um, I know for me, it was really uncomfortable for me to apologize, first of all, because I, I need to work on apologizing, (laughs) but um, just saying like, oh, I'm so sorry. I realized that this came out as blank. Um, And so I think just like naming that and acknowledging it. And it really does, um, like you said, like sometimes people are just shocked by the fact that you recognized it, but it also like validates like, oh, okay, like that did happen. Because sometimes people don't have the words to articulate what exactly happened. They just felt like something didn't feel right. I know that was for me a lot of the times. So um, self-correction goes a long way. (laughs) Totally, yeah. Um, Okay, so what are the benefits of culturally responsive, culturally uh, sustaining teaching? How does that benefit our students and not just our students, but really our whole community? I talk a lot about the difference between representation and affirmation. And I feel like this question definitely ties to that piece. So understanding that the people in front of you, if you are a classroom teacher, every single year are going to be different. And maybe if you teach middle or high school, then every class period, there's going to be a different group of kids in front of you. Um, Being able to actually respond to folks in a way that makes them feel seen and affirmed rather than just us putting our assumptions about who people are and what we think is best for them. For the sustaining piece, that makes me think of, you know, this question of what can we do to ensure that our schools and our classrooms are places where students actually want to come every single day. Cause that like, just like the, like the, you know, teacher staff retention piece is the same thing for our students that, Maybe we are trying to recruit black and brown kids and oftentimes it's not for the best purposes if it's for like boosting diversity numbers or whatnot or, you know, free and reduced lunch enrollment. Um, But really trying to think about what we can do to create a community that will sustain itself where people, where stakeholders are invested who want to show up that we can think about power being distributed in really, really different ways where kids actually have a sense of agency and autonomy in their own learning. Um, those are the, I think, are, are the benefits of how I see things, um, though I know, especially these days in this political landscape, that is the exact opposite of what a lot of other folks are trying to go for. 
Yeah, and that's just such a sad thing that's happening now. Um, but I really like that you said, you know, it's it's a space where everybody wants to come to every day, right? I think there's that psychological safety um, that needs to happen. And then also there's this conversation or this shift really from providing a safe space um, and, pro- and providing a brave space. I know something that you and I have talked about too is that we can't really guarantee a safe space, Um because everybody has different triggers, right? But creating a space where anybody who's involved feels that they can advocate for themselves, feels that they can speak up when something is happening is really, really important. And I guess, and, and you know, with that, I think it is, like, like you said, just creating that community where we want to come every day. I feel like that's such a beautiful thing that I think a lot of maybe our black and brown kids are not experiencing right now, or even our black and brown teachers are not experiencing right now. So really taking a step back and figuring out, like you said, how to distribute that power. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's also like a whole conversation, Liz, about power. (laughs) We'll have another episode. Um, so thank you for that. So um, something that I've always loved about me and you and our friendship is that we're both Asian and queer. And of course, there's so many other layers to our identities that we haven't even touched. But that commonality, that similarity, I I, I knew that I was drawn in um, to your energy. Like I just loved everything about your being. And so I think I can speak for both of us that we grew up with hardly any representation, right? You mentioned representation versus affirmation. Um, and so in any of the classrooms that we were in, so I know for me, I wanted to become a teacher because I didn't have a teacher who looked like me, nor did my education journey ever mention the Filipino experience or history. And so and anything queer in South Georgia, like, forget about it. That was like never mentioned. So <laughs> clearly everything who like everything that made up me was just invalidated and not really acknowledged at all. Um, mm-hmm. And so let's talk about representation and why it matters, because I have a lot to say and you'll probably be able to articulate it so much better than I would. <laughs> Okay. So I'm just going to give you a bit from, you've probably heard me talk about this before, but it's something I talk a lot about in different sessions that I do um, around this piece of you know, affirmation versus representation that um, a couple of years ago when I was living in LA, I heard Dr. Beverly Danielle Tatum speak and she gave this example, like we're all in this big lecture hall. Um, and if her folks don't know, she is a really amazing researcher, educator, activist. She wrote the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Um, but she asked the audience like to imagine that there's a photographer who takes a whole group picture of everybody sitting in this auditorium. And everybody gets a copy of this photo and that very naturally, when you get your photograph, the first thing you're going to look for is yourself. That is the representation piece. Do I even see myself here? Um, And then when we look closer, very naturally, we go to, well, how do I look in this picture? Like what I post this on Instagram or am I like sneezing and, you know, one eye is closed and stuff like that. And so that's the affirmation piece. It's not just, am I present, but how am I being represented? Am I being represented in a way that allows me to see myself and connect to other people who share my identifiers? Um, Or is it stereotypical? Is it only rooted through a lens of injustice and oppression? Am I just solely viewed as a victim of circumstance? Um, And so when I think about my identity growing up, and like I would, I was like grasping at strings, like whatever, whatever I, I could take, if it was Claudia Kishi, Trini the Yellow Power Ranger, you know, Mystery Files mm. of Shelby Wu, anything that had an Asian female character, 
I was, I was in like Mulan, like, and I'm Korean and the characters I just listed are what Japanese, Vietnamese, (laughs) Chinese, like I, you know, ethnicities that I don't belong to, but that's all I had. And looking at the intersection of like Asianness and queerness, I think Margaret Cho was like a little ahead of my time. So like the comedy that she was doing, like her show, her presence wasn't something that I was super aware of also because I was raised in a heteronormative household too with two like white presenting parents. So like queer Asian culture was not something that was really brought into our home. Um, And realizing that because I do have a lot of uniqueness at the intersections of who I am, um, sometimes you just have to go out and write the story yourself instead of waiting around for somebody to do it for you. Um, when I get the question, like, you know, when was the first time you saw yourself represented in a book? I have yet to see that. So mm. I'm writing it instead. Like I'm, I'm tired of sitting around and waiting for that to happen. Um, and I think so often if you have, you know, an identity that has been historically marginalized, you are constantly waiting for that invitation instead of understanding that you do possess the power to go out and tell that story on your own. So representation, I think, could not be more important, especially as we've, you know, had all of these very mainstream conversations about, you know, struggling with imposter syndrome. Um, My wonderful therapist has reminded me that, it's even more important for folks like us to get out there, to tell our stories, to talk about why this sort of affirmation is so important because with every additional narrative we add to this tapestry of who our community is, we have the opportunity to reduce imposter syndrome because we've just been able to expand this understanding of what is possible and you know what our community actually looks like. Oh my goodness, Liz. <laughs> Uh, I, I, you're just such an inspiration and I just, oh my God, I love everything that comes out of your mouth because it's funny that you mentioned Yellow Power Ranger. I feel like every Asian memoir that I've read mentions this Yellow Power Ranger and it's so true because that was me too. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's Asian. That's so dope. Um, and then also Mulan, but like also the problematic like, uh, but that was like all we had. Right. And I mean, like you stating too, like ethnically, that wasn't like that. That wasn't you. Right. And that was for me as well. Like there wasn't a lot of Filipino representation. I mean, and even like growing up in a Filipino household, like very heteronormative, very Catholic, like it was instilled in me and my siblings that like we were going to have a heteronormal, like normative life. Like I was going to get a husband. It was always a boyfriend, always a boyfriend. And that, and that was just wild that I don't, I didn't have that growing up. And I know that like, as an educator, like I was really intentional with the books that I had in my classes. I was really intentional with the stories that we read together. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to be able to have that, the opportunity to have those stories in the classrooms, right. With no questions asked. And so I think like representation, I am, I am that person, Liz, that you're talking about, like waiting, I'm waiting for someone to write a story that I can easily relate to when really like I should have this, this motivation, this power to just tell my own story. Um, and because I know time and time again, I'll read like a Filipino, um, literature and I'm like, Oh, but like, they're not queer or they're not a woman or non-binary or whatever. Right. And it's always like that gap of like, okay, maybe it is time for me to just like figure out how this is going to look for me instead of getting upset all the time that I don't see myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I, uh, I'm excited about all the work that you, you, um, that you're putting out there. And so how can we educators affirm learners' identities in our classrooms? So to truly and genuinely celebrate our learners as they are, regardless of what we and society and whatever political movement is happening have like always believed. I think a lot of, oh, that's a big question. I think honestly it can get boiled down to instead of telling kids you are this, asking them who are you? And that sounds like really simplistic, but I've also been amazed at how many teachers don't actually do that. A lot of the identity work that I do with students, if, you know, I wrote, I wrote this book on this topic also that came out now, like almost two years ago, gosh, how time flies. Um, (laughs) But different types of activities you can do, not just at the beginning of the year, but throughout the year to get to know your students, because our identities also shift and change. It's not just like first month of schoolwork. Um, If it is through identity maps or bio bags or, you know, narrative writing, um, trying to get a sense of how your students see themselves, where they might want to be supported or pushed, things that, you know, in in previous years or in other classes, they might not be comfortable, you know, bringing into the classroom. And I know that a lot of teachers have different opinions on how much of my personal life do I really want to share with my students? If it's, you know, work-life balance or boundaries, like I, I get it. And I also feel like if we are making big asks of our students for them to share who they are with us, that is, that's a mutual relationship. There has to be a two-way street. There is a degree of vulnerability and personal proximity that needs to be present if you expect your students to be able to open up to you. Um, I remember being asked by coworkers, like when I would say like, man, it was a really intense day. I had a student who shared like this particular story about his family and it, you know, it was really intense, but it sparked this really great discussion and having coworkers ask like, how do you get your students to like share those things with you? I'm like, because all year I think about this this work that we're doing in the community that we're building as like co-constructing this vessel with my students that has to carry and sustain this work long term. It's nothing that I can just put on them. It's also not something that I just expect them to do for everyone. Um, it's very much like a collaborative process um, that requires trust, that requires mutual respect. And too often in schools, when we talk about respect between teachers and students, we talk about compliance, not actually what like healthy respect looks like. Um, So thinking about what we're actually going to be able to do to put those types of values into our classroom and community to make sure that our students feel like they can be brave, they can be authentic, that they can show up. Um, And I think one of the best ways we can do that is modeling that ourselves with who we are. And there's that vulnerability piece coming in, right? It's so difficult to be vulnerable. Um, and it, there's definitely a push for that just to kind of show up as yourself as well, right? Like this whole perfectionism thing of getting it right the first time and not having any kind of revisions or reassessments is really unfair as far as like some of our teaching practices, right? But like showing up and and making mistakes in front of your students and then like figuring out how to... Um, learn from those mistakes is really important. I, I also think, Liz, like this compliance piece can be a whole another topic that we can talk about too, right? Like you're absolutely right about, you're so right about respect and what people assume or think or expect it to be when really it's just compliance. Oh. Yep. <laughs> I got to sit with that for a while. 
But I think it also connects to like that question about like cultural responsiveness and like culturally sustaining practices. Like I remember and like, you know, what I mentioned before about like social emotional learning really being seen through this like white dominant, not culturally responsive lens that like, especially when I was teaching in LA, having a lot of like Korean students, if you are, you know, having a serious conversation with a Korean student, chances are they're not going to make eye contact with you because in Korean culture, it's disrespectful to make eye contact with an older person or a teacher if you're a student. Um, But in Western or US culture, there's very much like, look at me while I'm talking to you, look me in the eyes, why aren't you respecting me? And teachers not understanding that piece, you're just going to create an even more like negative relationship with your student if you don't have that understanding. Right. And and this is something that I tell educators all the time is like really taking a step back and figuring out what are barriers that you're unintentionally creating? Because we always we're always creating barriers, whether we know it or not. And we really have to be aware and reflect on what those barriers could be. Um, and yeah, that's so true. Right. Like all the expectations that we may have of a certain group of kids or whatever that may be, because based off like what we know or what we think we know can actually be really harmful um, Mm -hmm. and not create that space where our students can show up as themselves. Um, And I think this is, again, where um, educating ourselves would be really important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And but also knowing that there's like, um, you know, there's that bias, confirmation bias as well. Right. If you're looking for that stereotype or that assumption, you'll definitely find it. And so I think. Uh, again, another lesson of how to like educate yourself in the most effective way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So listeners are going to take a quick break for announcement. And when we come back, we'll talk more about Liz's amazing work in education. Hey listeners, it's Tony Rose here with an announcement. When we have additional seats available for our virtual mentorship program, we always pull educators from our wait list first. If you've always wanted to join the virtual mentorship program but couldn't get funding, join our wait list at modernclassrooms.org slash wait list. All right. And we're back with Liz. So Liz, you wrote a book, Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school community. And I'm a huge fan of it. Loved it so much. But tell us more about this journey for you. Like, what was the purpose? What gap did you see? How did you write this? Um, But it was just such a powerful book for me. Um, And I know time and time again, I've read people's responses and thoughts about it, too. Of Just like it was just a very... I don't want to say easy, but it was a a great way to just kind of see what all we can do moving forward. So tell us a little bit more. Thank you so much. Um, (laughs) I mean, honestly, it was quite a process, like trying to get your thoughts together to write a book while the pandemic is going on. Not always the easiest, Um, but the the way that the book is organized, if folks um, haven't picked it up, Originally, it was supposed to focus on different barriers that educators face when trying to do anti-bias and anti-racism work. Um, And then like throughout the process, realized like I didn't want to frame it from like a negative perspective. So now it's through the lens of questions like, what if this? What if that? Um, Each chapter is based on a different set of responses that I received from educators through social media. As I was starting to plan for this book, um, I just put out a question on like Instagram stories saying, hey, educators, if you are 
like in a position where you want to be doing anti-bias and anti-racist work in your classroom or school, but you're not, why are you not? Um, I got hundreds of responses from people. And from the responses that I received, was able to sort them into different like common categories. And then those categories became the topics for each chapter. So if it's about working with administration or, you know, I only teach math and science, like what does this work even look like? Or I have like zero free time in my my planning periods and my schedule. Like what do I do? Um, I wanted it to be, again, responsive to teachers, like based on what they were experiencing, what they really needed. Um, And hopefully it's like, I I wanted it to be as practical as possible that any educator would be able to open it up, um, find an idea, a strategy, something that they might be able to try on their own. Uh, That was, I was like so excited, so excited when I found out about this book. And then I just, I love it so much. So thank you for sharing that. Um, And so a little bit of advice, I guess, but for educators who want to do a bar work, right? The anti-bias and anti-racist work, but don't have admin support. What would be one piece of advice that you would give this educator? Because I've heard time and time again from multiple educators of like, hey, this is really difficult. And then their challenge, fill in the blank, right? Yeah. You know, there are a myriad of reasons why an administrator might not be supportive. I think trying to figure out the root cause of that hesitancy is the first thing that we got to do. As someone who has never been an administrator, who learned so much about what administrators do throughout the process of this book, you know, even if you really dislike your administrator, if you think that they're plotting against you, Take a breath and try to have some compassion for your school leadership because they are wearing more hats than you could possibly imagine. Um, Administrators have the exact same fears, the exact same anxieties that classroom teachers do. And chances are, you know, your administrator is like an iceberg. You're going to see like 10% at the top and there's going to be so much stuff going on underneath that chances are they might not be communicating with classroom teachers because they don't want to stress you out more. So be kind, first of all, be empathetic. Um, But being able to have like a face-to-face conversation and be like, what can I do to, you know, boost your confidence in this work? Do you want to come in and observe like a read aloud in my classroom so you can see like, I'm not indoctrinating children, that kids are perfectly capable of engaging in these types of conversations? Um, Are you worried about parents? Is there a school board member that you're particularly concerned about? Like, what can we actually do in terms of a partnership to support one another in this work? Um, In my book, I also have a couple different planning documents that I hate the, you know, the idea of checking boxes for this work, but just making sure that you have your bases covered. If you are going to do, let's say like a lesson about gender and sexuality in your class, knowing what text you're going to use, what are outside resources that might support this work, what are ways that you can bring in parents and caregivers to involve them in this learning process, how can you communicate this, how can you check for understanding with your students. Like the same types of things that we would do for many other subjects that we teach. Um, I just think a lot of people don't think about doing those same types of check-ins with students regarding ABAR work. Mm, Yeah. All of this. And I, I, I like the humanizing approach, right? Of, you know, first thing first, um, let's have empathy because again, everyone's wearing so many different hats. Um, and I like the iceberg, um, 
metaphor as well, because I think that's so true for any individual, right? Um, and so I really like that. And again, just opening up that conversation, like you said, and, um, and just trying to figure out like how we can move forward with this kind of work that we want to start doing in our classrooms. And so thank you for that. Um, and so I've heard again, like specifically from white educators where, you know, they're saying like, hey, we really want to connect with our students, but we're afraid of making or saying the wrong thing, right? There's time and time of uh, videos being released on social media of teachers saying some things that are problematic. And so it's left them to just kind of do nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. What would you tell those educators? I would say if you're afraid of saying something wrong, chances are you will say something wrong. Like as we talked about earlier, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. Being accountable to your mistakes being clear about them, showing that you have learned from them, I think is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, Thinking of like going back to what um, I had mentioned about, you know, trying to co-create this vessel with your students. What are the types of things you can do to build your classroom or school culture that is really explicit about the way that folks communicate? If harm occurs also, what does accountability look like? Um, I think even if you are like a white, cisgender, straight Christian teacher teaching a class of predominantly black and brown kids doesn't mean that you don't have anything in common with your students. You probably have more in common with them and vice versa than you could ever imagine. Um, But figuring out if questions or issues come up in your class, how are we going to resolve them in a way where people feel brave enough to voice their concerns um, and that we can also continue to humanize one another. It doesn't matter if you're a student or if you are a classroom teacher. But I understand the fear and we also can't let the fear get in the way of doing this work. Yeah, I mean, this makes me think of that. Of this one instance with my students, um, I really wanted to shift to more gender gender neutral terms as far as, you know, instead of saying like boys and girls or ladies and gentlemen getting, you know, my students attention. I shared that with my students and I said, hey, if I do this, I need you all to call me in or correct me and say like, Miss D, you meant class or group or team, right? And so um, when we started creating that community, like you said, right, it's a collab- collaborative opportunity for us to just kind of check in with each other. And so they were really good with checking my terms that I use in my class. And it, and it created just that accountability piece for me too. And it allowed for my students to see like, oh, Ms. D is, is shifting, making some changes with the words that she uses. And so they also just started you know, kind of checking in with like, if there were any biases that were coming up or like one of my students was basically like, Hey, Miss D, I really appreciate that we've covered, you know, black experiences. We've covered and talked about Asian experiences, but we haven't talked about any like Hispanic figures. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I, you're right. Um, but I think that they really appreciate the fact that they're able to tell me what I'm lacking and I'm not like going off and like, feeling some type of way about it, right? It's more so like, oh, that was definitely something that I lacked that I didn't even know I was lacking. And thank you so much for sharing that with me. And I was able to implement or like have a lesson right away that had, um, a, you know, someone who spoke Spanish or Hispanic heritage or anything like that, where my students were like, okay, like she's taking our feedback into consideration and not just we do what she says we do. Um, So, yeah, um, fear is a part of it, but I think that we will never learn if we 
just sit in comfort. <laughs> um, so Liz, what do you hope to see in the future and what goals do you have? Oh my gosh. How much time do you have? <laughs> A big one, right? <laughs> what do I hope to see in the future? Ugh. I feel like my hopes for the, you can edit this out if you want. My hopes for the future like are such low hanging fruit, like they're on the ground. <laughs> I mean, I want a future where we are not debating whether or not we should teach black history. I want a future where queer kids are safe and loved and affirmed in our schools and, you know, their families don't run the risk of being snitched on by the government, you know, just for supporting their ch- their child's like, you know, gender identity. I want all of those things. I want our schools to be joyful and flexible, um, affirming places for kids. And, you know, I think that I have definitely committed myself to trying to work towards that common goal with other folks. Um, And like on a personal note, I'm trying to do more things that also bring me joy because this line of work, like education is exhausting. And then adding this layer of, you know, focusing on racism and inequality in schools can be kind of a downer. Um, So wanting to focus on things that are going to be joyful and, you know, inspiring and and liberatory for folks, um, really trying to shift that perspective and that mindset. We're going to manifest all of that and it is going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) We're moving pebbles. Um, So that's something that I really like to focus on too, is like, this is a, this is huge work. This is a, this is a big piece. Um, And if we focus on like, making big changes all the time, um, that can be really disheartening. Um, so all of that and more, right, Liz, that's, that's really, really great. Like you said, <laughs> low hanging fruits. <laughs> um, how can our listeners connect with you, Liz? Um, I am most active on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at teach and transform. Um, I have a website, teachandtransform.org. Um, feel free to hit me up there. And that's where I also just share a lot of my work. So would love to connect with folks, uh, drop me a line, send me a DM. Yeah. <laughs> Slide into those DMs. <laughs> and Liz is really good at responding. And I think another thing that I really love about Liz is just that, you know, she is responsive. You can, you have access to her, which is, which is beautiful. Um, and so one last question, Liz, before you go, um, you and I love horror movies. So what is your favorite horror movie? And you think everyone should watch <laughs> favorite like ever. That's so hard. Oh, gosh. Um, okay, so one we, we were talking about earlier is an Orthodox Jewish horror film called The Vigil. Um, it's very, very good. It's very creepy. I really like more supernaturally type of scary movies. Um, so I would highly recommend that one. Um, also, I saw Megan recently, and that was wonderful. It was so creepy and funny and smart. I I really, really liked it. <laughs> Uh, that's been in the theaters for a while too. I may check it out. Good to know, Liz. <laughs> it's definitely, I have an appreciation for horror movies that are rated PG-13 because you're going to rely on a lot of other things aside from just like straight up violence and gore to make an impact mm-hmm. on people. Like <gasps> it's really, really smart and just absolutely hilarious at moments. Okay. That's so good to know. Um like as always, Liz, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your brain um, and just teaching me new things always. So 
Listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org and you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 128. We'll have this this episode's recap and transcript uploaded to the Modern Classrooms blog on Friday, so be sure to check there or check back in the show notes for this episode if you'd like to access those. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday. Again, Liz, you're the bomb.com. You're amazing. Thanks for chatting. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.